pushed the door open and it hit me in the face. In that world, of course, this was completely legitimate. Just sprayed right across his face, you know. Licked it off, wiped it with his hand. It was warm. British crime has known few sprayers of warm liquid more notorious than William Aloysius Sides, or, as he is better known, Billy Sides. It's important to remember the world that Billy Sides came from. It's very easy to say, oh yes, he's a cheap little thug, he probably didn't even do a lot of the things he's accused of, he probably made half of it up anyway. It's very easy. The Crays, the Richardsons, the Sabinis, the Jameses, the Earps, Pretty Boy Floyd, Machine Gun Kelly, Billy the Kid, Sammy the Bull Gravano, Mad Teddy Smith, Mad Frankie Fraser. There's just something about violent criminals that we can't resist, isn't there? Perhaps even such heroic figures as Dick Turpin, Robin Hood, King Arthur and Attila the Hun were more violent criminal than hero when closely examined. Did Henry V and Richard III have more in common than perhaps we like to admit? But these aren't the questions we're looking at today. My name is Bob Spillage. For many years, I was the crime correspondent with the Midlands Free Weekly. My job often included meeting with, and mixing with, some very dangerous characters, the sort of people you definitely wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of. Although it wasn't always a reassuring line of work, it gave me an insight into the world of the professional criminal. So when I was offered the chance to meet one of the great figures of British crime, I said yes. There were still quite a few awesome carts around the area when I was growing up. The coal man, yeah, he still come round in awesome cart back then, yeah. The milkman, the rag and bone man, men, there was usually two of them. They do this shouting, you know. I won't, I can't do it now really. Found it very annoying as well. You'd be walking home, back from a job, night on the town, doing some business, whatever, and there'd be some silly old toe-rag bawling and squawking like Tarzan gone doolalia. I'd say, shut up! Shut up! I'm having hard enough time here without you making my brain vibrate! Stop it! It wasn't only the horse and cart, rag and bone men's cries and jelly deal sellers' patter that marked out the world that Billy knew in those days from the world that was soon to replace it. There was a way of doing things, a code of values, in short, a spirit in the East End of the 1920s and 30s that can be traced back to the London of Dickens, Gladstone and Jack the Ripper. Go blimey, strike the light, love the apples, got the spans, you're a man of love and Bobby, prefer a nice pair, I miss it. Oh, cheeky. God bless Queen Victoria. Oscar Wilde, is he this? Down with Victorian hypocrisy. Roll out the barrel. Step right through here, sir. Game of Charles, what ho? Very discreet. Hand your cloak into the sinister looking bloke at the desk. Enjoy it. Hello, Ed. Looking for a bit of fun, are we? Bit of entertainment? Bit of don't tell your mum, is it? Don't be shy. Socialism and free love for all! It's in this fertile breeding ground of crime that the unique East End spirit was formed. The spirit that was still around. Just in Billy's early days. Oh, they was real characters in them days, real ones. My dad and my granddad, both my granddads actually, used to tell me about them. You see, the purest kind of criminal, the true criminal, is what you call a villain. The villain is a kind of non-specialist criminal. He's game for anything. 
He may not have a particular skill, like the safe breaker, the cat burglar, the pickpocket, the con man. The villain usually relied principally on violence, on his wits, on cunning, above all, on fear. They had no time for domestic life. They were afraid of no one. They never backed down and they usually died young. As one retired criminal put it to me, you couldn't help admiring a villain, but he lived like an animal and he died like one. And I decided that was what I was gonna be. Because a villain is the purest type of criminal. He has a pure criminal nature. They've got crime literally in their blood and bones. Of course, you don't get the real true villains anymore. Not like the ones my old man and my granddads used to tell me about. The 1920s were marvellous. The 60s was nothing compared to the 20s. There was the flappers, the jazz, the Charleston. Oh, wonderful music. Post-war euphoria, loads of blokes being killed in a war, I mean millions. So there was a bloke shortage and all of these women, so statistically, as a man, you was laughing. It was blinding. And then suddenly, Bush, the Depression. The music was still good though. Well, my main racket was the libraries. Obviously, when money's short, people have to cut back on entertainment, things you do for fun, yeah? Because you've got to stick to the essentials, your rent, your food, clothes, fags and that. And reading, well, obviously, people like to take refuge from the grim and bitter realities of hardship in the worlds of imagination and intellectual exploration. So the public lending libraries, that was where people turned to. They was free, but if you was late returning your books, obviously there was fines, same as now. Them days it was only a penny a day for each book. But of course people would forget. They might be struggling to finish it if it was a long or difficult book. I mean, there was a lot of innovative stuff going on there, and you've got your modernism and your 30s social realism, so some poor unemployed sods trying to get through Ulysses, the latest WH Auden, Kafka, do me a favour... Wittgenstein's Tractatus, it's short, but it's a right brain churner. You're not going to finish them bastards in two weeks, are you? So they go a few days over, the fines start building up. They're embarrassed. It was a disgrace in them days, owing library fines. It was social stigma, yeah? So people would just keep the books. They could never use that library again. They'd worry about the fine collectors coming round. They'd have to go further and further away to find new libraries. They'd end up on a library blacklist. Their cultural self-improvement's going stale. It's a nightmare. So when people went into a library, we'd have a quiet word. They'd pay us a small fee, very small fee, once a month that'd cover their fines for a year. So they didn't have to worry about the fines. We'd pay them off as they accrued. So no public embarrassment for the borrowers. Libraries get their fines paid. We made a nice steady profit. And the stunting of the mass public's literary cultural advancement was done, finished. No more stunting, none. But the library fines racket was a relatively minor part of the 1930s underworld. Inexpensive leisure activities were highly prized in that lean and hungry decade. And the racetracks had been a source of illicit profit for Britain's criminals since the 19th century. By the 1930s, many of Britain's horse race meetings were controlled by Italian gangs. One of the most notorious of which was the Tatini family, led by Antonio Bunny Tatini. <laughs> Mm. 
Yeah, the Tatinis was a tasty firm, all right. But by the time I knew them, they was out of date. Their time had passed. In terms of their approach to crime? I'd say it was really in terms of their caps. Their caps? They were still wearing these big flat caps, you know, like big cloth cow pats on their head. I mean, it, it was all right in the 20s, but this is like mid-30s. It was anachronist. It was like wearing flares in the 80s, mid-calf-length skirts in the 60s, you know. And they wore waistcoats with watch chains, shirts without collars, yeah. And a thing, it was called a, a stock, that was it, round the neck, bit like a cravat. You can't go around dressed like that in the mid-30s and expect to get taken seriously. Appearance was um, very important in the underworld at that time. Oh, yeah. And don't get me wrong, they looked good in the 20s. It was flash, it was distinctive, and it was practical, too. Really? Oh, yeah. They used to sew razor blades into the peak of the caps, yeah? Three blades, or four in the really big caps, the cowpat ones. And be fair, that made a good weapon. You hold it by the back, you can slash a man's face open with one swipe. Whoop, just like that. I see. They'd sew them into their lapels and all the blades. So if anyone grabbed them by the lapels, their hands were cut to pieces. And then people got to know about that, so they started grabbing them by the waistcoat. So they started sewing blades into their waistcoats. And then they had to start sewing them into the stock, the, the neckcloth thing, yeah. And people started grabbing them everywhere, by the sleeves, shoulders, the facings, the underarms, the trousers. So eventually they had to sew the blades in all of them as well. And I mean, they had more razor blades on them than clothes. They had to be very careful getting dressed. It was hazardous. Could cut themselves to ribbons. They had to do it very slowly and carefully. And then moving was dodgy too. They had to walk around like zombies, you know, arms and legs stretched out. Now, it ain't easy being intimidating or, frankly, running away from a copper while zombie walking and worrying about self-laceration. Nah, their time was past. But it wasn't unfashionable and razor-blade-laden clothes which put an end to the Tatini brothers' not very successful career in the London underworld. It was global events. With the Tatinis and other British-based Italian gangs interned as enemy aliens, the world of London crime was wide open for takeover. Now, the government missed a trick there, didn't they? You've got all these tasty geezers in the nick doing their time. You've got safe crackers, safe blowers, know lots about explosives, burglars, good at getting in and out of locked places. You've got pickpockets, conmen, smugglers, fences, hardmen. They could have done blinding work in espionage. War would have been over at least a year earlier, but no, the powers that be kept us in there, doing bird. Because it was more important to them to keep us working-class blokes in our place where we belong. That was more important to them than saving the country. Uh, so why were you in prison during the war? Desertion. Didn't report for call-up. The war speeded up and intensified a lot of processes that were already happening in the 30s. The Italian gangs had gone. The bombing was destroying swathes of old London. Many of the young men who would have been getting involved in crime or joining the gangs were away in the services. And the circumstances of war provided new opportunities for those criminals who were still around. And it wasn't long before Billy was around again. So, uh, Billy, how did you uh, escape from prison the first time? 
Changed clothes with one of the cleaning women. Walked out the main gate, simple as that. Got the idea from wind in the willows. You know, Mr Toad escapes from Nick by changing it, by doing what I'd done. I was known as Billy the Toad for a while after that. Now a free but wanted man, Billy lived the secretive and uncertain life of the fugitive outsider in wartime society. It was a marvellous time. Obviously, with the war and the rationing and all the shortages, there was a lot of demand for things which was in shortage. And people who, before the war, might have been too honest to buy stolen goods, now they put that to one side, out of sheer necessity. And you've got the blackout and you've got the bombing, so when there's an air raid, everyone goes down to the shelters, we just used to walk in the houses and help ourselves. Lovely. Load it all up on a wheelbarrow or a van and take it away. Anyone asked, you said you'd been bombed out or it was your mates or whatever. And you'd get all the stuff sold off in a day or two, no problem. Um, uh, did you... Or take silk stockings. Yeah, okay. You couldn't get them for love nor money. I mean, it was hard enough to get ordinary stockings, never mind silk ones. Took about a year's worth of clothing coupons. Women used to draw a line up the backs of their legs with eyebrow pencil, I think it was, so that it would look like they had stockings on, you know. They didn't want people thinking that they didn't have any stockings on, even though everyone knew there were shortages. I mean, sometimes blokes didn't have any socks, but you didn't notice that because the trousers was longer then come right down over the shoes, and I was quite baggy too, so it weren't really an issue. But the ladies, the stockings really meant a lot to them, and I really didn't like the idea of them drawing lines up the back of their legs, putting eyebrow pencil against the skin of their legs and drawing lines up them. It, it grieved me. So I went to a lot of trouble. I moved heaven and earth to get all the silk stockings I could, by hook or by crook, and let me tell you, they sold out like water in the desert. So clothes were very important. I made sure I got as many silk stockings as I could. I tried to corner the market. I might have even neglected my other business because I was so focused on them. But you can't imagine how important it was to women in those days to feel that silk, all smooth, cool at first and then warm, so soft and smooth they can hardly feel them, but they're there, you know. It makes them walk different, hold themselves different. You can tell, well, I can tell, I can sense the soft smoothness of the silk against the smooth softness of the skin, the firm grip of the suspender straps, the subtle insinuating swish, swish as they walked along. It made them feel that they were desirable, that they were creatures who desired and were desired. So clothes were extremely important for morale in those days. Well, it's all tights now, isn't it? Billy was working hard on the home front, but he was still a man on the run, and he was soon imprisoned again, and destined for the armed services. They kept picking me up, yeah, and trying to get me into the army, but I kept escaping. It weren't difficult. Things had got a lot slacker then with the war, a lot of the younger warders being off in the services. They brought a lot of retired ones back, and they wasn't so lively, you know what I mean? But it was still a pain, you know, always getting picked up and slung back inside. And I was worried they might actually get round to putting me in the army. And that might be more trickier to escape from. They got guns, for one thing. And someone told me best way to get exempted from military service is get certified insane. They don't want head cases in the army, obviously. And he says, quickest way to get certified, have a shit in public. If you can, 
do it in the governor's office. Middle of the room, straight on the carpet, that's it. Long as you look sort of blank, so they don't think you're doing some kind of protest or whatever, they'll put you in the hospital, have a chat with a psychiatrist, unfit for military service, done, lovely. So next time I was in the governor's office from our monthly review, as he was talking, I just went and stood in the middle of the room, stood with my legs apart, started undoing my trousers. Then, I don't know, it just hit me. I thought, somehow, this lacks dignity. So I'd done my trousers up and I just squatted down, just sat there squatting with my hands on my knees, like a monk or something. Stayed there about two minutes, looking blank, not answering them. Eventually, they took me to the psychiatrist. He said I weren't insane, just mildly eccentric. Oh, so that was how you got your famous nickname? Yeah, yeah, it was. And looking back, I'm glad I didn't go through with the shitting, because then I might have been known as Crapping Billy or Billy the Shit or something, and that might have gotten confused with the idea of shitting yourself out of fear. People might have thought I was known for cowardice, and that could have had knock-on effects in my criminal career. You've got to be careful about nicknames. Like all good things, the Second World War had to come to an end. This had profound effects on the criminal world of post-war London. Increasingly, the world of the London underworld was coming under the control of two men, Dick Rash and Joey Haunches. Ben Wideacre remembers the rapidly changing dynamics of the time. There was all little teams, you know, out of the war with all the bombing. There was bomb sites everywhere. We used to have fights with each other from the different areas. There was the Watney Streeters. Whitechapel mob, the Bethnal Greeners, Poplar mob, the Elephant mob. I mean, there was Clemmy Offberg, Little Charlie Dixon, Sammy the Ponce, Big Albert Foote, Ernie the Knife, Harry the Man, Edward the Eighth, Mine the Gap. It was governors, you see. And there was this time we was down in the basement of the Budgery Gar in Lumbering Street, off of the commercial road. We used to play a snooker down there. One day, Dick Rash comes down with some of his chaps and says, Come on, lads, off the tables. They wanted to play the flyers, you know, tiddlywinks. So we wasn't having that. Um, well, it all kicked off. Clemmy's it, Dick Rash. Knocked him spark out. I'm having a stand-up with Mickey the Bra. All of a sudden, I see Ginger Tony. He's done Charlie down the face with an open razor. Done him from the corner of his eye right down to his jaw. Now, we was always having fights, you know. Nice fight, biff, bash, wallop, wallop, bit of boot, bit of leather, that was it. We never knew nothing about no razors. I mean, you can't slash someone just because you want to play tiddlywinks. Half the school playgrounds in London would be running with blood. But that's the way things was going. A new post-war world was taking shape, and Billy was in the thick of it. It was getting a lot more organised, yeah. And Joey was the man, Joey Haunches. There was him and Dick Rash, but Joey was the man. Rash, he thought he was the man, but he weren't. He was the number two. No one could take that away from him. There was only Joey above him, but Joey was above him. That was just a fact. And Joey never held it over him or nothing. Joey had more class than that. But Rash, he could never accept it. And then a the time come when Joey went into a job, a big one, and didn't even tell Rash about it. So Dick Rash gets a right um, It's a matter of respect and dignity. So Dick Rash tries to have it out with Joey Haunches on Brewer Street. He sees Joey walking along Brewer Street, tries to stop him. 
Joey ignores him, walks on. Rashi gets all enraged, grabs hold of Joey, and the two of them are fighting all along Brewer Street, grabbing each other round the neck, trying to trip each other up. Eventually, Joey gets him, Rashi's down on the ground, he's torn open the knee of his trousers. That's it. Joey's walked off, it's all over. Rash gets up, staggers into a barber shop, says, fix me up, and passes out. And this became known as the Battle of Brewer Street. Did it? Yeah, yeah, it did. And then Dick Rash grasses, doesn't he? I couldn't believe it. You couldn't do a worse crime than that. There he is, he's been doing people for years, and then he's grassing someone up for a bit of tripping up over a serious act of disrespect regarding a major crime project. I was appalled. And Rash was finished after that, of course. No one in the criminal world would have anything to do with him. The case collapsed, and old Joey retired at Acosta. And Dick Rash, well, he moved to the Midlands and ended up in middle management. It's what he deserved. With Rash and haunches off the scene, the London underworld was once more open to potential new management. It was about then you started hearing about them, yeah. The twins. It was never Ronnie and Reggie, always the twins. Ah, oh, that'll be down to the twins, people would say. That's the twins behind that. Hang on, what if it's the twins? Who exactly are the twins? It was a very strange time. Nobody knew who they were, but everyone was terrified of them. Some people wondered if they really existed or if it was some kind of multi-layered bluff by the coppers to cause confusion among the criminal community. But then, of course, I was in that book, the photo of them with the Beatles and all that. Um, Michael Caine, there was all famous people in it with pictures. Uh, Mick Jagger, you know, all people who was famous at the time. Uh, Twiggy, she must have been in it. Him off the Carry On films, James Bond, they would have had one of them in there. It was all about who was on the scene, yeah? Who was making the scene? Who was a face on the scene? The swinging scene in London. It was when the swinging 60s was coming in, you know? Blokes with long hair, birds in miniskirts, mind-bending drugs, peace and love and anti-war protesting. The twins was right in the middle of it all. And being in that book with pictures and everything, that meant they was real. There was no more conspiracy theory stuff about them then. You can't fake being famous. You certainly can't. And fame was a key element of what made the craze Britain's first true criminal celebrities. They were often seen rubbing shoulders with actors who, even today, you might recognise from old films, soap operas and documentaries about the Cray twins. The twins' unique combination of elegance, cockney charm and mental illness gave them an aura which fascinated all kinds of people, including famous ones. It was a symbiotic relationship, and it produced a curious synergy. In this, they were different from their only true rivals, the Richardson brothers. Charles and Eddie Richardson were brothers, but they weren't twins. They were photographed with Stanley Baker, but uh, not with Diana Dawes. The Crays were played on film by the Kemp brothers from Spandau Ballet. The Richardsons were played by the Goss brothers from Bross. None of this, of course, means that the Richardsons were less notable criminals than the Crays. If anything, fame can be a disadvantage to criminals. It makes them easier to identify, for one thing. But the synergistic effect of the Crays' association with the famous undoubtedly enhanced the symbiotic relationship that fueled both their celebrity and the air of danger their celebrity companions enjoyed. 
One of the celebrities who experienced this symbiosis, and indeed synergy, was the Hollywood actor, prolific playwright and East End boy made good, Simon Kickoff. They were performers. This is what you've got to understand. There is a real connection, a kinship, if you like, between the criminal and the actor. You have to perform. You have to say the right lines, make the right moves. Your timing has to be perfect or you are dead. It's no accident that we talk about dying on stage, that we talk about killing the audience. It's like Shakespeare said, to perform, to act and to do. They performed, they acted and they did. And, my God, so did we. Six evenings a week and matinees on Wednesdays and Saturdays. But... As London swung to its zenith, the craze seemed to have gone off script. They were improvising, and some of their ad-libs left them, and others, in need of a prompt. One such ad-lib, if such it was, involved the East End villain Jack the Mad Axeman McVicker. His friend, Ben Wideacre, remembers. Jack was a good pal of mine. The Mad Axeman thing was more of a joke, really. He used to carry an axe, uh, and axe had it on a chain round his neck, under his shirt. It was more to frighten people than anything. He didn't make a habit of axing people. But the twins sprung him from jail because they felt sorry for him. They thought five years was far too long for a parking offence. And Jack, he was a sociable bloke. Liked a drink, a dance, some birds. So he was going out all the time, pubs, clubs, parties. So the twins are worried he's going to get recaptured and it will come back on him. So they take him to a party. Well, they tell him it's a party. It's actually a Bible class. Bored him out of his mind. They didn't want to do it, but he had to learn his lesson. But then, you know, he kept on going out. One night, a copper recognises him outside the old wheat sheaf and that's it. He's back inside for seven, eight years and, well, it's bound to happen. He starts doing O-levels, A-levels. By the time he gets out, he's got a degree in sociology, for Christ's sake. He's appearing in news reports about crime and penal policy. Oh, man, you can't do that. Can't spring a man from jail, take him to a party that turns out to be a Bible class, let him get put back inside, do a degree and appear in earnestly liberal documentaries, just because you feel sorry for him. Half the villains in Britain would be at university. The great drama of 1960s British crime was reaching its denouement. The Craze and the Richardsons, the foremost criminal performers of the time, the Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud of crime, were in the wings, listening for their cues. For a while, it looked as if gang warfare on the scale of the National versus the RSC was about to break out. Well, the Richardsons was a very different kind of firm to the Crays. I mean, they wasn't nearly as image-conscious as the Twins, for one thing. They was basically businessmen. They were scrap metal dealers, traders, investors, insurers, consultants. Everything was about the bottom line with the Richardsons. Even the torturing people with electrodes and pliers while tied naked to chairs was all about business. It was part of their management theory. Whereas the twins, I think they was more into violence for its own sake, you know? It was more part of a way of life. Uh, but if it had come to a straight fight, one firm against another, who, who do you think could have won? 
Yeah, this is one of the eternal questions, isn't it? We'll never know. Like I say, the Richardsons was more discreet, more profit-focused, didn't go in much for the wild, dramatic spectacle. Then they got in a fight and in a nightclub, someone gets killed and they end up doing long prison sentences. With their only serious rivals out of the picture, the Crays could have consolidated their power and made themselves the most powerful criminals in London, possibly in Britain. Instead, Ron Cray went to a pub and murdered someone in front of lots of witnesses, making it difficult for the twins to focus on wider long-term organisational issues. Why did Ron kill George Cornell? There are three main theories. That Ron thought Cornell was a bully, that Cornell had called Ron a fat puff, or spite. Whichever it was, many Cray gang members were appalled, including Ben Wideacre. Well, that was it for me. You can't kill someone just because they've called you a puff. After a world could be dead. As the 1960s drew to an end, both the Richardsons and the Crays were out of circulation for the long term. Inevitably, the question arose, would British crime ever be the same again? Billy, with the Crays and the Richardsons gone, how did the British crime scene change in the 1970s? It could never be the same as before, obviously. They took something with them something I think we'd taken for granted that we didn't really appreciate at the time. Hmm. What, what was that, do you think? There was a sense of style, authenticity, respect, elegance. Crime in the 70s just weren't the same for me. It was all a lot scruffier. Blokes had the long hair, you know, often didn't bother to style it well and the sideburns, moustaches. It was a very whiskery time, you know, and very sweaty. You could see the sweat on everybody's faces and the flaws in their complexions, and it was all in colour as well. Blokes wasn't wearing suits no more, not even ties. It was all bright-coloured shirts, two or three buttons undone, jeans, tan leather jackets, earrings... I mean, even real hard cases was looking like hippies and there was more swearing and all. Even the coppers, you know. It used to be, Mr Smith, you are under arrest for blah, blah, blah. Please come quietly, sir, and there'll be no trouble. Now it was all, get your trousers on, you're nicked. It wasn't only the clothes and manners that had changed. It was also the types of criminal activity now being pursued. It was all changing. I sold off my interests in the fruit machines to one of the big companies. It was all getting very corporate, you know. I went into the pinball machines for a bit, then the coin pushers, then the what the butler saw machines. I thought they was due for a revival because there was a big nostalgia thing going on with the upstairs, downstairs, Duchess of Duke Street, the good old days... But none of them did much business, so the, what the butler saw machines did well in the old people's homes. I moved into football hooliganism for a bit, that was coming in, but there weren't any money in it. Same with streaking, that was very popular, but no profit in it, that was the bottom line. The rapid changes in society were closing off old areas of crime while opening up new opportunities. For Billy... As for many criminals of his generation, it could be a bewildering new world. Yeah, well, the big new thing was the drugs. It was everywhere. Now, I'd seen what drugs can do. They destroy lives, families, communities. 
I weren't bothered about that. But the thing is, you can literally not trust no one when it comes to drugs. You can be as careful as you like, check everyone out, only work with people you trust, keep track of the goods, then you get the stuff home and unpack it, and what have you got? Bleeding personal automatic. I'm sorry, but I don't care if it washes white. I don't care if it washes biologically. It has very little street value. It wasn't only new attitudes to drugs that were changing the criminal world. The sexual revolution of the 60s was also changing the options for professional criminals. There was the strip clubs, the prostitution, pornography. I got out of all that. I couldn't afford it on the money I was making. But I had some contacts in the adult entertainment industry and I thought, with the way things were going, adult entertainment and ordinary proper films were starting to come together. So I went into film production. My first project, I wrote it myself, it was called Skirt Around the World. It was based on a true story from someone I knew about this ordinary geezer who does a couple of years inside he meets this lifer who tells him if he had his time again, he'd travel the world instead of murdering people. So when he gets out, the ordinary geezer, he goes straight, saves up, travels the world, has erotic encounters with women from all different countries and learns the true value of freedom, different cultures and crumpet. If we could have got some big names involved, you know, Christopher Biggins or Wendy Craig, we'd have been well away. Unfortunately, we had to do it very low budget. It was pretty basic, pretty rough, you know, not the vision I had in my head. We lost a lot of the nuances that it should have had. I had to do the part of the hero myself in the end, and a couple of ladies who were in the industry, they'd done most of the women's parts. But let me tell you, if it had been made in French, they'd be showing it on BBC4 and they'd be teaching it at the... National Film College. No problem. 100%. The 70s and 80s were something of a lean period for Billy. Perhaps not surprisingly, he's cagey about some of his activities at this time. Among those he will admit to are managing a rock band, running a security firm and dealing in leather goods. He believes that British culture in these years was increasingly hostile to the British underworld in a way that he found problematic. I feel there was a lot of negative portrayal of crime, yeah. The way criminals was portrayed, especially in the media, was always very negative. It was always made out to be all greedy and nasty and ugly and just bad, really. And I think some of it we brought on ourselves. We'd allowed it to happen. If people have always been given the same old rubbish, they're going to start believing it and it gets very hard to challenge all the deep-rooted prejudices. And this is where I've got to take my hat off to Mr Fraser, Mad Frankie, or Sir Frankie as it would be if there was real justice in the world. Frankie really, he laid the pavement for the rest of us. He showed that if you tell it like it is, if you tell it straight, if you say, yes, I'm a villain, this is what I've done, this is my world then people will respect you for it. And the public did. He'd done the one-man shows, the coach tours, the interviews. He'd done his books, bestsellers, done loads of telly. He was in a film and people liked him. And he really 
open the floodgates for the rest of us. People can see through all the rubbish in the media. And this was the real thing, yeah? There was a lot more of an inclusive attitude. And there's someone else I got to tip the wink for, and that's my man Guy Ritchie. The smoking barrels, the smash, now the grab, the snatch, that was it. The rock and rollers. See, he knows these people. He's lived this life. He's not making it up. Some of the actors he has ain't even actors. They're real villains. They ain't acting. Although, be fair, the actors he has are good. They are men. You can't tell the actors from the real ones if you don't know. The new public mood of acceptance towards criminals opened up new opportunities for Billy and others. But it raises the question, should villains really be seen as heroes? Simon Kickoff again. If you come from the working classes, as I have, then you do tend to see these people as heroes. Not because you approve of murder or theft or maiming or mutilating, but because they were kicking against authority. As a teenager, you hear these amazing stories about these young men getting up to all kinds of capers, and of course you're thrilled by it. These guys have guts, and my God, you have more respect for them than for some ponce of a lawyer who charges you a thousand pounds an hour. You want to see crooks? Go to the Houses of Parliament. If you want to understand the villain's world, go and see my play Bottle, particularly the scene in which Boner, the hero, describes the fight in the warehouse, and you'll see that the violence is in the language, just as the language is in the violence. I mean, what do you mean by heroes, anyway? Everyone's human, everyone's done bad things. Old Guy Ritchie, he ain't saying they're angels. He's just showing them as real-life people, yeah? They've got the emotions and feelings and that, but they ain't complete wusses. They dish it out and they take it. They ain't these cartoon, cardboard monsters like what the media say. They've got a sense of humour. They've got all the chat. Guy has to slow it all down, the dialogue, because if he showed it like it really is, with all the quick-fire banter and comebacks and brilliant piss-taking rhymes, you wouldn't keep up with it. It's like a room full of Oscar Wilde's on speed, 100%. But don't take my word for it. Have a look at the advertisements. If you think about it, they got some actual villains, retired but proper chaps, you know, doing advertisements. George done the vodka one. Tony and Freddie done one for shirts, and they was nice shirts and all, not rubbish. And the company, the shirt company, paid them for it. And they're not going to do that if they ain't popular, are they? They just want to sell shirts. They could have got some poncy model or actor, but they never. They got villains, and they sold more shirts. That's just facts. Advertising don't lie. One, two, one, two. One, two, three, one, two, three... Like many semi-retired gangsters, Billy has decided to bring his story to the public. Tonight is the opening night of his one-man show, A Sideways Glance, here at the upstairs room of the Lonely Duck in Peckham, South London. And like any first-night performer... Ain't the first but... night. Ain't the first night. Uh, sorry? Final rehearsal, mate. What they call the dress rehearsal in the business. Or the technical. Oh, right. I, I was sure it was... Um... Don't the posters say Yeah, that no. Well, yeah, some of them do. It's, it's a misprint. The 
printers got it wrong, didn't they, idiots? I'll be having a word with them, all right. But I'm, I'm sure you told Look, me... Look, if it was tonight, there'd be punters here already, wouldn't there? Yes, yeah. I suppose it is getting a bit near the time. If it was today, uh, the opening night, um... <sighs> they say that if you survive for long enough, even the most notorious outsiders become respectable in the end. Perhaps the recent popular affection for old-style criminals is part of a longing for an older, more straightforward, less cynical time. A time when there really was honour, or at least respect, among thieves, and professional criminals in general. A world of gangsters, rather than gangstars. Or perhaps it's because we all like to believe that no one is beyond redemption, that rehabilitation is always possible, and no one could deny that mildly eccentric Billy Sides is a survivor. From the 1920s to the start of the 2020s, he's been at the centre of a world of British villainy of which he is, possibly, the last representative. The old, pre-globalisation British underworld may be nearly gone, but it had something. Not just an identity, but a spirit. And there's no doubt that Billy Sides is, as he always has been, full of it.